Well, let's start today with a talk about uh, uh, about combat, um, specifically in the form of Super Smash Brothers. Uh, it's a video game. It's a fighting game by Nintendo, uh, and the most recent version is currently on the Nintendo Switch. And a lot of the people at this church play this game. So I'm kind of talking about it like you don't know what it is, but most of you know what it is. Um, I've had the opportunity to face off with almost every one of you in this room that, that plays the game. Uh, and I feel like I've poured hours and hours into this game. And no matter what, even though it's been like over a year that, uh, that I've been investing in this, every time we play, invariably, without fail, I can't seem to lose. I mean, I just keep winning. I just keep crushing everyone that I fight. It's not even hard. I don't sweat. I don't worry. Nothing bothers me. Why are you booing me? I'm right. All right, disclaimer. I'm kidding. I get beaten all the time. Um, but at least I'm a threat, okay? At least, at least when, when, when we face off, people, like, you have to pay attention. You have to lean forward. You know what I'm talking about? You, you, you can lean back on the couch, or you can lean forward, and then, like, you know. But the one person I can't beat like ever, is John Kim. He's the guy, I've, I've never beaten him on a one-on-one one match, right? And I've tried like a gazillion times. Um, and then every, t- every time it's like a group match, he's really the only one I'm going for. And still he's killing me while he's fending himself off against the rest of the group. Uh, and it's weird because uh, I, I, I do the math in my head, okay? And I'm like, well, how well does he know his character, right? Because I'll use Link from Legend of Zelda and he'll use anyone else. And I know my character extremely well. I know how fast his attacks are. I know how much damage they do. I know his maneuverability. I know the, the arc uh, of, of his, you know, his projectiles. So, like, I'm a master with Link, except I'm not. But I know the character well. I've played, I've played it enough times that I know the character very well. And then John knows his characters just as well. He knows everything that they can do. And so... Uh, so it should be an equal match. I know my, everything my character can do, and I, I'm, I'm very comfortable and familiar with it. And he knows what his characters can do. He's very comfortable with it. It should be equal. And yet it's never equal. It, there, there's no contest. It's extremely one-sided. And I, I sat there trying to figure it out. And I had like a few conversations with them where I'm just asking him, like, what's your secret? Um, and you know, he explains stuff to me, kind of tells me what I, what I should be doing. And I'm like, I know I should be doing that because I know my character. I know what I'm talking about. You know, you're not better than me. But then, but then he also tells me, like, I knew you were going to do this. And so I did that. I knew you were going to go you know, to the left. And so I turned around. And I, you know, he kind of, he tells me that it was predictable what I was going to do next. It's not predictable, but, you know... <laughs> But he would say that. He'd say that uh, he knows what I'm going to do. He knows my strategy. And because he knows my strategy, he knows how to counter. He knows how to posture himself and and position himself in a way that uh, that can undo me and foil my efforts. Uh, And, you know, that kind of applies to any kind of combat, right? If you know what the enemy's move is going to be, if you know the enemy's strategy, if you know their plan of attack then you can counter, you can adjust, you can, uh, you can appropriate your strengths in, uh, in different places in order to accommodate for that. Uh, imagine playing chess. You don't get good at chess simply by knowing how each of the pieces moves, you know, that the, the horse goes forward and then side side, or, you know, like it just, that doesn't help. Right? It, 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 if you, it, that sounds like a noob. Where you're sitting there like, oh, the, the castle thing can just only go in straight lines and the, and the bishop can only go in diagonals. You know, that you think you know your stuff well and you think that you're, you're like equipped now to take on you know, any opponent. But then the, if the opponent knows how you play and how, the kinds of decisions you make and stuff, uh, you're just not going to win. Right? You have to know how the other person is going to move. You have to know what, what they're going to do. And what, uh, when two people know themselves well and know each other well, when, when you know your own strategy and you know your opponent's strategy, that's when the most epic battles take place. That's when everything is close. That's when it's anyone's game. Well, we've gone four weeks so far, today being the fifth, on the topic of spiritual warfare, and we've been establishing that every Christian is targeted by an unseen enemy. 
in a battle for the human heart. And uh, the only way to fight effectively is not just knowing what you can do, but it's also knowing the enemy's strategy. Right? You have to know the enemy's strategy. Satan's been around longer than the human race, so he's not stupid and he's not incompetent. He knows exactly what he's doing. He has multiple ways of making us ineffective for Christ. And so uh, talking about his strategy is not something that we could just cover in one day. So we'll be, we'll be taking multiple weeks on this subject, on, on, the, uh, on Satan's strategies, and uh, understanding how he tries to render the believer ineffective, or how he tries to prevent an unbeliever from coming to faith. So today, specifically, uh, we're just going to we're, we're narrow it down to a single topic on uh, the issue of, of uh, deception and doubt, right? This is, this is his strategy, deception and doubt. Uh, and for each of these weeks that we're going to be doing this, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about who Satan and who the demons are, and then we're going to talk about how that affects us, that, you know, to understand the strategy, right? So let's start with talking about who, who Satan is. Uh, Satan is a liar. We got, we got two points for today. Satan is a liar is point number one. I'll let you know when we get to point number two, right? But Satan is a liar. This is, this is just the very basic way to, to know it. Um, you have to understand this. He is by nature uh, a liar, a deceiver. That is his essential contribution in the story of creation. In the history of all that is, uh, that's what he's going to be known for. And you can see how Jesus describes Satan when he's speaking to the Pharisees in John. He's talking to a lot of Jews. Some Pharisees are there. Uh, are there. And then in John 8, if you've got your Bibles there, look at verse 44. And this is what it says. Uh, Jesus goes, You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Right? You can't be more direct than that. Satan is a liar. There is no truth in him. When he speaks, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He is the father of lies. These are extremely strong words that Jesus is using to say that Satan cannot be trusted. Satan should not be dealt with in a way where you think he might be on your side. He's trying to help you out or anything like that. Everything about him is shady. Everything about him is a scam. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. You, you, you can't say it uh, more strongly than, than Jesus did. Satan is actually uh, the first liar ever, which is probably why Jesus calls him the father of lies, right? Um, recall Revelation 12, verse 9, and uh, remember the apostle John has this vision, and he says, that, uh, talking about Satan, he says, the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him, right? His angels being fallen angels, they're all demons. That's what they're, they're called, right? But Satan is, is the one who, he's the deceiver of the whole world. And it shouldn't surprise us that Satan takes the world captive with deceit. And, and Jesus sets us free with the truth, right? Those two are juxtaposed with one another. There's, uh, there's understanding, uh, when, you, when you take information, either you're following false information, empty deceit, or... You're following the truth, and the truth leads you to, to Christ. So, I mean, take a look at these two verses. Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Right? Watch out for being deceived. Right? And then it says in, uh, in John 8.31, it says, uh, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Right? You're either captive to a deception or you're set free by the truth. It's one or the other. Well, there's no proper way to talk about Satan as a liar and the father of lies without actually looking at the moment in which uh, he introduces lies into our, into our universe, right? So Genesis 2, everyone, jump over to Genesis chapter 2. This is the, this is the very beginning of the Bible, the beginning of the creation story. Uh, this is where God had, uh, had made the man, Adam, but he didn't yet make the woman, Eve. So the man exists, but the woman does not yet exist, right? And I want you to look at God's commands in, uh, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, right? It says, the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters, uh, that's Yahweh, 
uh, Yahweh God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then Yahweh God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Meaning I'll create the woman now. Okay. God made the man. He made Adam. He put him in the garden and he gave him good work to do. And he said, you can have all these trees. You can have all this stuff. It's, it's, it's all yours and you can work it and you can, you, can, um, you can gain from it and all that stuff, right? And then he gives one prohibition, one restrictive command. He says, just don't eat from that tree. This one single tree. And there's nothing else described uh, about this tree to make it set apart. It's not like it, it had like black smoke coming off of it or anything like that, you know? It didn't, it didn't seem to be distinguished in any other way other than the fact that God said, just don't eat from this one, right? All the trees of the garden you can eat, you just can't eat this one. No, you can, don't eat the fruit from this one, right? Um, now, after God told him that, then God decided to make the woman, uh, and I keep pointing that out. The key observation being that she did not exist yet to hear this command, right? She didn't exist when God gave the, the restriction to Adam. He said, don't eat from this tree. So he then, Adam, is responsible to, to tell her and to lead her and to, to make sure that, that, he's, you know, that that tree is, is off limits. That's on him. Okay, well... Uh, God makes the woman, Eve, and now Adam and Eve are in the garden. It's paradise. The world is perfect. And then stage left, enter Satan, right? Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Let's stop there for a sec, right? Uh, that right there is not a lie, but it is deceptive. It's a manipulation, right? His first line is not only an overstatement, but it, it's one that is meant to imply unfairness, right? Uh, the, the literal translation, there's a negative to the question. It's God didn't really say you, should, uh, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden, did he? He didn't really say that, did he? So there's like this, this tone to it that's, that sounds dissatisfied. There's a tone that's meant to instill in you a sense of discontent. Like, oh man, did God really say that? Really? He didn't. He couldn't have. That would be, that'd be bad, wouldn't it? And he's making her feel like God was being restrictive, unfair, unreasonable, unnecessarily strict, like God didn't want her to be happy. And if you notice, he's speaking to the woman because... She didn't exist when the command was given. She heard it from Adam. She has to take Adam's word for it. So the serpent comes to Eve, who, is, uh, who did not hear it straight from God. She heard it from Adam, right? Uh, and he gives her the impression that God is taking away everything, taking away every tree, right? Do you notice the way he asked it? God told you you can't eat any of this? Really? And that's overstatement. That's not what God said. God said, don't eat from this one tree. You can have all the other trees. You can't just don't eat from this one. And here's Satan going, you can't eat any of these. And it doesn't even matter that he's using misinformation. It's the tone that he's conveying, right? Um, it, it, like notice that about his strategy. He's not targeting Eve's understanding because she could just go, oh, no, 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 no. He just said this tree. Hey, we could eat anything else, just not this tree. And if it was just targeting understanding, that, that would have been a, a, a wasted effort. Right? If he just presented uh, erroneous information, then she could just correct it with factual information and then problem solved. Except that's not his strategy, is it? He, he starts off with this tone. Ah, oh, God didn't really say that, did he? You can't eat from any of this? And he's targeting her feelings. He is making her feel like there is something wrong with the commands that God gives. And that's why he planted uh, that question, that, imp that impression. Well, she responds because she's going to correct the information. But, but the seed's been planted. He's, he's made her kind of feel a little discontent. Look at verse 2. Uh, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. 
But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Right? Eve recites the command back, which she must have heard from Adam because she didn't exist when it was given. Uh, but it's kind of interesting that she adds this little thing. She's like, yeah, 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 we can eat from anything. We, we just can't eat from that one tree in the middle. And we can't even touch it or else we'll die. So uh, why does she add that thing? We don't really know. Maybe she's just like being naive and cute or something like that. You know, like children can be like that. I could be like, you know, to my son Elias, I'd be like, don't eat this or you will die. Right. And then he could tell mom, like, dad told me not to eat. I can't even touch it. You know what I mean? Like someone can do that and you can't blame her for being naive. She's been created only a few moments ago and there is no other population on the earth to inform her. Right. So it's okay for her to just be like, yeah, we can't eat it and we can't even touch it. Could be that. Or. Maybe her husband, Adam, maybe he was like, God said, don't eat of the tree. You know what? Don't even touch it. Maybe he added that. It could have been that. Or it could be that she's exaggerating and overstating, much like Satan did. We can eat anything, just not this tree. You know what? We can't even touch it. And maybe her tone is starting to agree with the sense of unfairness. and, And God is so restrictive and he's so unnecessarily strict. We don't know. We don't know, but we just know that she kind of added this little thing. You, sh- you can't even touch it. Verse 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Right? Now, there, right there, is the blatant lie. That's, that's where Satan says, what God told you is not true. God said, you will surely die. You will not surely die. Right? Satan has her agreeing with him in her feelings of being like unfairly restricted, unfairly prohibited from having something that she wants, something that looks good. Right? He has her agreeing in her feelings. And so he could just introduce a blatant lie and she'll embrace it because she wants to believe that now right? He says, no, 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 you're not going to die. You're fine, right? God's just being unfair. And then then she's like, yeah, yeah, he's being unfair. And so I won't die. She wants to agree with him. uh, And so Satan speaks a lie, knowing she'll embrace it because she wants that to be true. Verse six. uh, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her And he ate. And there you have it. Right? With that lie, with just that lie, Satan led Eve to her death and Adam followed and consequently so have we all. And I guess just uh, before we put all the blame on Eve, you should take note that Adam was right there with her. He saw and heard the whole thing and did nothing. Uh, He was the one to whom the command was originally given. He was responsible to lead his wife spiritually, and he failed. And that's why Adam is the one that God blames for bringing sin into the world, Romans 5.12. Even though Eve is the first one to commit the sin, 1 Timothy 2.14. Right? Sure, Eve committed the first sin. Adam is responsible for the sin that entered the world. Well, the point we're making is that Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies. And lying to us is one of the strategies in rebelling against God, right? That's how he fights against God. That's how he makes war with God's people, by lying to us and deceiving us. Any, uh, anyone who works for Satan will advance the same deske- deceptive schemes, right? Demons will do this. Unbelievers will do this. The Antichrist will do this. It'll all be a deception. Take a look at Acts chapter 20, verse 29. The Apostle Paul says that fierce wolves will come in among you, church, Uh, not sparing the flock. And uh, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them, right? False teachers are going to come up. They're going to sprout up and they're going to try to draw people away and and entice them with something else other than the gospel we gave you. Second Thessalonians 2.9 says, uh, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan That's the Antichrist, the lawless one. The coming of the Antichrist is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. 
right? Either you follow deception and lie to your destruction, to your eternal damnation, or you follow the truth and the truth sets you free. That's what leads you to salvation. Well, he says that, uh, that false teachers will come into the church and they'll try to draw you away. He says even the Antichrist will come and, and entice the world, draw them away. It is the, the, it is the, the primary method by which Satan will try to, to uh, destroy the earth and dismantle God's people by deceiving them. So when we say that Satan is a liar and a deceiver, obviously it's to point out that he lies to us and deceives us. But I want to specifically operationally define what we mean when we say he lies to us and he deceives us, okay? Um, when we talk about how he lies to us and he deceives us, what we mean is he makes a person doubt God and doubt what God says, right? That's what he did with Eve. If you, if you just kind of get it, he's like, no, God didn't really say that. So he was lying to you about that. You can't trust what God says. God's words are not reliable. And he also says, God doesn't want you to take of this fruit because if you have it, you'll be like him. He's holding out on you. He's not really interested in your good. So he wants you to doubt God, God's character, God's intentions, and he wants you to doubt God's word. Those are the, the, the ways that he, uh, he brings people to doubt. He, he wants them to doubt in those two areas. They want, he wants you to doubt God. He wants you to doubt what God says. And that's what he did in Genesis. That's what he still does today. And we're not talking about, uh, I, I'm clarifying this because we're not talking about the other ways that he lies to us. Because we can, we can say that Satan lies to you and he makes you doubt yourself. Satan lies to you and, and uh, tells you that you're worthless. Um, you know, something like that. Those things we'll deal with on a different week, okay? Specifically, we want to deal with the deception and the doubt that, that he stirs around your understanding of God and God's word. That's what we're talking about today when we talk about deception and doubt, right? Um, Satan lies to people. He deceives people so that they believe in something false about God. So they, be- they believe something false about God's word. Look at 1 Timothy 4. Verse 1, it says, Now the Holy Spirit expressly says that in later times, which is today, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Right? You have to know that when, when there's, there are deceitful spirits coming in, when, there, when there's a, a false teaching coming in, where is that coming from? We, we have this way of just thinking that demons don't exist. We don't talk about it uh, except in, in the Bible stories, but we don't talk about it in real life. When there's, when there's false teaching, that's demonically powered. And the Bible is not ashamed to say that. It's not embarrassed to say that. We might be because we feel like that's unscientific and it doesn't sound educated. It sounds so ancient and ill-informed. And yet the Bible says this is, this is why... This is why uh, False teaching is so rampant. This is what demons do. They propagate false teaching. And Satan owns the world. He's the god of this age, the, the prince of the power of the air. There are a lot of different titles for him. And, uh, and if he owns the world, then certainly his agenda to propagate false teaching is going to take over. To believers, it means that they, uh, if, if they follow the lies... If they follow, the, uh, if they follow the, the false doctrine, then it means that they don't believe in sound doctrine, and that makes them far less effective in knowing God and glorifying Him. Their understanding is, uh, is damaged. That's why in Matthew 13, um, Jesus talks about a parable of weeds, and He's like, within this, this field of wheat, which is like God's people, Satan is going to sow a bunch of weeds, and uh, that's, it's false. You know? He's going to have a bunch of false believers in the church to mess everything up. That's what he does to try to make God's people less effective. Now, if you're an unbeliever, to the unbeliever, it means that they will not believe the gospel. If they follow the lie, they, just, they won't believe the gospel. They'll refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Right? This is one of the ways that, that uh, Jesus describes Satan specifically in Matthew 13, the, the parable of the four soils. Remember, we talked about that last week. There are four soils. And on one of the soils, uh, which represents the human heart, the seed, which is like the word of God, it's thrown. And when the, when the word of God reaches the human heart, it says in Matthew thirteen eighteen, it says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, that's Satan, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Right? And he's saying that, uh, that people can hear the word and instead of believing it, they sit back, 
And they, they do not believe it. They go, uh, maybe, I don't know. I don't think so. Like the, the truth is just told to them plainly, it's explained to them. And they sit back and go, uh, no. Right? That's the activity of Satan. When, when he comes in and he just snatches the word away. When he, when he snatches your trust in what God says away. He makes you doubt God. He makes you doubt God's word. Right? He's, uh, he's spoken some lie or some deceit and he's pressed the person to doubt and disbelieve. And this can be an attack on a believer, on believing true doctrine, or it can be an attack on an unbeliever to prevent them, this person from coming to faith. Either way, Satan is a liar, he's a deceiver, and he uses lies and deceit to prevent people from believing God and believing what God says. And he's good at it. He's very good at it. Right? He's, he's a better liar than any of us are. He's been doing it far longer than we've existed. He doesn't make himself super obvious. Right? We think, oh, Satan's in the room. There's going to be some dark, cloudy spirit that I can see or feel or something. You know, like we, how many people say that they could see spirits, they could see demons and stuff? You know, like, they, like the demons make themselves obvious. And yet the Bible is like, that's not how it works, right? Look at 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Um, the Apostle Paul says, look, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, just like Satan deceived Eve, by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you, you're, you're putting up with it readily enough. You're tolerating it. Like, I'm worried about you because you're just okay with this, right? Uh, in verse 13, he goes, uh, such men who are bringing the, this kind of teaching, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. What Paul is saying there is Satan doesn't walk around super obvious as in some smoking, dark, demonic form that you know Christ, like Christians could see, oh, I could see spirits. And I could, there's a demon around. It's not that obvious. His whole point is being a deceiver. He doesn't dress in gothic clothes, walk around listening to metal, and just, ah, I'm Satan. He doesn't do that. Right? He, he looks like a normal person. Do you, of the 12 disciples that Jesus had, one of them was filled with Satan. Satan possessed him. His name was Judas Iscariot. And the crazy thing is, right before he betrayed Jesus at the final hour, Jesus goes, one of you is about to betray me. And all the disciples are like, wait, is it me? Is it me? No one was like, is it Judas? Right? They're all wearing their, their I don't know, their you know, robes and togas or whatever. You know, they're in sandals and stuff. And then he's in the gothic wear with like kiss makeup. And he's just like, how did you know? Right? That's not what happened. All of them are like, well, who is it? Who's going to be the traitor? Who is it? Judas looked like all the other believers, all the other disciples. That's how Satan works. Right? He disguises himself as an angel of light. He disguises himself as, a, as an apostle of Christ. That's what he does. The people Satan uses can be pleasant, moral, religious even. And they'll deceive you away from keeping Jesus central in your heart. Anyone who thinks that it's so easy to just detect a demon, it's, they're, they're making you put your guard down. You know, I don't, need to, I don't need to watch out for demons. That person could just see spirits. And so I could just go over there and they'll just tell me if there's a demon. Around. It's never like that. Right? That's why the, the, Peter says, keep watch. Because he prowls around. The enemy does. Right? You have to keep watch. Satan is a liar. Well, if that's true, if Satan is a liar, then let's talk about idea number two, Satan's most powerful lies. He can lie about a lot of stuff, but let's, let's deal with Satan's most powerful lies. I'm going to give you seven of them. Um, I, I think these are the most powerful lies that Satan uses to delude the world. Uh, each of these lies can turn into a gigantic discussion. Okay, each, We're, we're going to move through them pretty quickly, uh, and it's going to feel to me that we're not really doing it justice. 
but uh, it could turn into a giant discussion worthy of exploring. And so with several of these, I'm just going to refer you to other sermons, other recordings that we have, okay? Just in case you want to explore more and, and figure that stuff out. If you feel like you're wrestling with that, then I'd, I'll just reference a few. And the reason why I say these are the most powerful lies that, that Satan uh, tells is because as long as you believe any one of these lies, you will never understand your identity. You'll never understand your purpose. You'll never understand your value. You'll never understand your destiny. And you will never be saved. Insofar as you believe these lies, you are prevented from salvation. Okay? Seven of uh, Satan's most powerful lies. Lie number one. God does not exist. That's a pretty obvious one, right? Uh, This is where people say, if everything came from God, where did God come from? Right? They say things like, if God is all good and all knowing and all powerful, why is there evil and suffering in the world? Either he tolerates it so he's not all good, or he doesn't know about it so he's not all knowing, or he can't do anything about it so he's not all good, uh, he's not all powerful. And so they go, uh, the existence of God uh, and the existence of evil, they contradict each other. And so they say God can't exist. Sometimes they'll say uh, God is man's ancient coping mechanism to try to explain away phenomena that he didn't understand in the natural world. Right? It was an ignorant explanation of the world around them. They didn't understand the stars, so they're like, the stars are, those are gods. They didn't understand earthquakes, so they're like, oh, that must be the wrath of God. Everything just, you know, you just explained it away with God. And so they say God is just an excuse. He's not, he's not an explanation. But this is atheism by definition. And while it's uh, on the historical timeline, it's the newest and youngest major religion on the planet, it's been around long enough to feel familiar to us. And the Bible predicted that people would, would think this way in Romans 1. God says, it, uh, God says that he is obvious to us. The existence of God is obvious to us, and yet men deny the creator, and instead they worship creation. Look at Romans 1, verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Right? It says the presence of God, the existence of God is obvious. You're without excuse on this. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And isn't that exactly what happens? Instead of uh, creator God, instead of God making us, making us male and female, man and woman, in his image, instead it's we came from creation. We, we, we came from other animals, right? From, uh, from things that resembled mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We, we all came from the same primordial soup. Discussing the existence of God is a much more involved process than the few sentences I said. If, if you're, I mean, if, if that's a tough issue for you, if you want to talk about the existence of God, uh, you can go to our Ten Commandments series. The first commandment, there are seven sermons on, on the existence of God. Just to lock that down. You know, is God real? How do you know God is real? What's he like? How do you know that's the real God instead of all the other gods? And it's, We're going to, okay? But you can just go there. For now, though, suffice it to say that if Satan convinces you that God does not exist, you cannot be saved. Lie number two. The Bible can't be trusted. Right? People say that you can't trust the Bible. They say, I don't trust the Bible. I, I, I have reservations about believing in the Bible, in all of the Bible, or in only the Bible, or entirely on the Bible. Right? They say it's written by men. They say it has errors in it. They say, well, the process of choosing the 66 books took years, and so how do you even know if they got it right? Uh, They say the Apocrypha should be included in it. They say there are contradictions. 
They say there are too many interpretations. They say uh, it was used to justify horrific acts. They say that it's culturally outdated, etc. And again, each one of those is its own lengthy discussion too, which is why to save time, I refer you to our series called The Bible. It's a five-week series. It'll talk about the inerrancy, canonicity, sufficiency, reliability, and relatability of the Bible. Okay, so you can go there. But here's what, uh, what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 1. He tells, uh, Paul is writing to Pastor Timothy, and he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. What does that mean? What does it mean to be in season and out of season? doesn't matter. Be ready in both, right? <laughs> preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That's an instruction to a pastor, and that, of course, is to set an example for the entire body, for the entire church. Uh, So it starts at least with the church leaders. My job, honestly, is not to defend the Bible. God can defend himself, and whoever doesn't believe, doesn't believe. That's your choice. You're free to choose, Uh, and you'll, you'll get what you choose. But the, the charge that Paul gives to Pastor Timothy is the, the charge for every pastor, preach God's word in every season, out of season, teaching all of it patiently to do what the Bible does. It reproves, it rebukes, it exhorts, it, all that stuff. Society will turn away from it. Society will start picking and choosing what they do or don't believe. They're like, ah, I believe parts of the Bible, not all of it. Or they'll say, I believe the Bible and this other thing, and they'll add on to it. They'll, uh, they'll push in whatever spiritual ideas they want to syncretize with, uh, with the Bible. And ultimately, what Colossians 2.23 calls it is a self-made religion, which is not God's word at all. Because ultimately, it just comes down to, I just don't believe that the Bible really is the standard of instruction. I just don't believe that. Either I have to add to it or I have to reject some of it. But I don't take God at his word. I don't believe it's God's word. If Satan convinces you not to receive the Bible as God's word, all of it as inerrant, you cannot be saved. You have fallen into the lie that Satan has given Eve. Lie number three. People aren't bad. They're not that bad, right? No one should be told to change who they are. This is the way they are. This is the way they were born. Why would God make me this way? You know, they say that I was born this way. I should be proud. I, should, I shouldn't have to be ashamed. Uh, they'd say things like, uh, God isn't good either. I mean, he kills more people in the Bible than anyone else. Uh, they'll say no one is perfect, but that doesn't mean everyone is absolutely wicked, right? Uh, they'll say that some unbelievers are better than some of the Christians that I know. This is humanism. And humanism is couched in hedonism. And hedonism is the foundational tenet, if you didn't know, of Satanism. This is, the most, uh, this is most expressed in our society's sexual revolution, which has led to the uh, reconstruction, or rather the deconstruction, of our understanding of sex and gender. Right? This is where uh, we go, no, if this is the way I am, I shouldn't have to repent of it. Look at Genesis 1.27. It says, God created man in his own image. Uh, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So he created male and female. That's the, the, those are the two sexes to the human race. And he calls one man, he calls the other woman. That's, that's it, right? That's, that's gender, that's sex and gender. And then uh, our society is run rampant in a completely different direction and said like that none of that matters. You know, it, uh, God has no say in this. If I don't want to be the way I'm created, I don't have to be. I can come, I can identify with something else, which you can't, you know, I, I, I can't identify as a 12 year old. You can't, you can't change the nature of what you are. 
And yet our society has somehow done this. And the, and the Bible talks about it too. It says that this is exactly the way people will go. That even like the, uh, the way we understand our sexual identities and our sexual relationships will be twisted in that way. Look at Romans 1, uh, verse uh, 26. It says, for this reason, God gave uh, these people up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Right? The, the, the Bible says this is exactly the way society is going to go. We're, we're going to ignore God's design. We, uh, people are going to think there's nothing bad about what we want. If we feel naturally inclined this way, then we should celebrate it, not repent of it. And it leads to a denial of God, it leads to a distrust in Him, and it leads to outright rebellion, it leads to unrepentance. We got lots to say on that in our series in Romans, especially the first like three chapters, the th- first three sermons, excuse me. Um, and then there's an, even a, an appendix on that, on, on the issue of sexuality and stuff. If, if you think you don't need to repent because you were born a certain way, you just this is the way I am, and so I shouldn't have to repent of it. it uh, then you're, you're denying the nature of sin and how it's inherited, and that all of us are born with a sinful nature. And we are responsible to repent of it. And if we, if we say, no, the way that I'm born is the way that I should celebrate, you deny repentance, you deny faith, and you cannot be saved. Line number four. Christianity is not the only way to God. Christianity is not the only way to God. Uh, this is where people say all religions have some, some portion of truth and some portion of error. You just got to, you know, take the, the things that you like. Uh, they say if someone is true to what they believe, then that should be enough. You know, as long as, as, long as you're faithful in what you believe is true, then it should be enough. Um, some say it's bigoted to think that you have to believe in, in your God in order to be saved. Um, others think, you know, the, there's the, uh, the question that I think every, question, every Christian might, might entertain this for, for a little bit in their heads and wonder about it. Uh, what about the, the uh, aborigine out in some third world country who, uh, who has no, no moment in his life where he's exposed to the gospel and, uh, you know, and he, but he does his best and he, he takes care of his family and, and he works hard and he, 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 does, he, try, he tries not to do any wrong. Would God really send this person to hell? You know, is Christianity, you have to be a Christian in order to, to go to heaven and stuff? Right? This is, this is where we go, do you really need Christianity in order to be saved? Which ultimately breaks down to, do you really need Christ in order to be saved? Now, the exclusivity of Christ, the, the idea that Jesus is the only way of salvation, that idea is the reason why we need to preach the gospel. If, if we didn't need Jesus to be saved, we don't need to preach the gospel. What for? You can get saved without Jesus. You can get saved without the gospel. Then what, what would be the point of evangelism? What would be the point of missions? And yet, Romans 10 is like, how are they going to be saved if, you, if they don't hear the gospel? That's the only way. Uh, look at... Uh, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father, no one comes to God except through me, right? And the the use of the article, I am the way, is very important because he doesn't say, I am a way, I am a truth, I am a life. No one comes to the Father except through me or some other means, but he has, he has narrowed it down exclusively. I am the way. In uh, Acts 4.12, uh, the author Luke says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. The, the whole letter of Galatians written by the Apostle Paul, is written on this occasion because in, Gal- in Galatians chapter 1, he, he just, he keeps saying, like, if you have a, a gospel of any other sort, one that doesn't include Christ and, and are, need to repent and believe in him, then uh, that's a gospel that isn't about Jesus on the cross. It's a false gospel. Let him be accursed if you believe in such a thing. 
right? That's the whole, the whole occasion for the letter. If Satan convinces you that Christianity is not the only way and you don't need Jesus necessarily, you, you, can, you can get saved in some other means, uh, you are accursed. You cannot be saved. Line number five. If you were good in life, if you are good, then God won't send you to hell. If you are good, God won't send you to hell. Right, this is where people say, like, I don't want to be insensitive about this, but um, some people will, will say things like, like my relative, my grandma passed away, and she was a good person. I just, I can't believe that God would send her to hell. And I understand they, they speak that out of grief, but what happens is their, their relationship to this person becomes prioritized over God's standard of holiness and righteousness and justice. And so God should tolerate sin and God should not be perfect in righteousness because you really loved this person. Um, people say, of course I'm going to heaven. I was a leader in my church for, for 20 years. I followed all 10 commandments. That's what the rich young ruler says to Jesus too. Like, I follow all the commandments. What, what else do I need to do? Well, I mean, I don't think I need to nail this one too hard. If you're, if you're at this church, you're, you're just going to hear it all the time. But Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. By grace, by undeserved goodness, right? Um, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right? You being good enough is not what gets you saved. You being saved is what enables you to do good work. If you're not saved, the work you do is not good. There's always some, some angle to it, a godless angle. But you have to be saved in order to do good work. You can't be saved by good works because you're not able to do them if you're not saved. That's something you have to reconcile as a Christian. Not only do we repent of our sins, but we have to repent of our righteousness. Right? If we think God will accept me because of how good I am, you must repent of that and say, my righteousness, all of it, I count it all as loss, as rubbish. It's, it's all a, a, a heaping a pile of dung. Right? All the good things that you do amount to some standing before God. That's, that's a, a, a different gospel. Like he owes you salvation. Like you earned it. You achieved it. You accomplished it on your own. Right? Like he owes you, maybe not salvation, but he owes you anything. He doesn't. Right? How, how easily we think we're saved by our own goodness. And how we, uh, you know, we, we just think that if I'm good enough, if we recite our own works, we justify our standing before God. You fall short no matter how good you think you are. And you deserve divine punishment. And the gospel is the divine punishment was dealt, just not on you. It was dealt on Jesus. You fell short. You deserve punishment. It was paid by Jesus. At no point does the gospel say you were good enough and God owes you. You were good enough and so you, you earned your ticket. It never says that. It says you deserved penalty. Penalty was paid. Right? The only way you're saved is not by your righteousness, but by his righteousness, which he gives you. If Satan convinces you otherwise, you cannot be saved. Line number six. Heaven or hell aren't what the Bible says they are. Heaven or hell aren't what the, what the Bible says they are. Um, people will have different, differing views on hell. They'll say hell doesn't exist. They'll say uh, hell doesn't seem fair or hell is not eternal. Or they'll say uh, hell is just a metaphor for like depression or lack of self-actualization. You know, if you don't know Jesus, you are in hell. You know, you, you don't really understand. And, and people who have differing views of heaven, heaven uh, isn't as good as it seems, right? Heaven misses all the stuff you can experience on earth, right? All the money, sex, and power that, that earth can offer you. Like, you, you can't have that in heaven, maybe. And so, oh, you want to live it up here before you go to heaven because when you get to heaven, you're going to be missing this stuff. This is where the good stuff is. Or 
uh, or the one that, that might get like the, the Christian after a few years, you're like, heaven just sounds like we're singing forever. That sounds like hell. Look, hell isn't some, first of all, heaven, no, that's not how heaven is like. Okay, I should, I should deal with that. But hell isn't some misunderstood metaphor and heaven isn't some false promise. Both of these are, are paradigmatic assertions by God. Look at 2 Thessalonians 1.8. Um, in talking about hell, he, he, uh, the Apostle Paul says that it's in flaming fire, that God will be inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Right? Hell is a reality and it will happen and that's what God will do and that is the just punishment for sin. And then talking about heaven, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, verses 16 and 17, it says, uh, The Lord himself will descend, Jesus himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and, we will, and so we will always be with the Lord. Right? That's when Jesus returns, everyone's going to be with him, and where do we go? We go off to heaven. That's, that's it. And eventually the heaven gets established, new heavens, new earth, etc. Right? The, the, the reality we are guaranteed is that those who reject the gospel will suffer eternal punishment. But whoever repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus, whoever believes, shall not perish, but have eternal life. And those two destinations are spoken of in the Bible exclusively as the only two options, right? They're instant. After death, you're in one or the other, nothing else. They're, that's it. Unbeliever or believer. You're either part of God's kingdom or you're not part of God's kingdom. Those are the only two places. If you are a child of God, you're in the house of God, in the presence of God. If you are not, you are not. Right? And trying to insert any additional holding tank like limbo or purgatory or the outskirts of the kingdom is a delusion. That's where Satan lies to you and says, God isn't really going to judge sinners in hell. Or Christ doesn't really save you all the way to heaven. Something has to happen to you more. You have to do something more. His righteousness wasn't like enough credit to actually get you there. His atonement didn't actually accomplish all of the punishment etc. At that point, you, you say either God isn't righteous or Jesus isn't enough. And if Satan convinced you of either of those, you cannot be saved. Line number seven. Jesus is not the true hero of the story. Some other religious figure is the true anointed one of God that we should follow. Right? Either some other religious figure or some other religious philosophy or some other religious perspective. This is where basically all false religion ends up, specifically cults. But uh, you trust in some philosophy, some way of life, or some seedy guy in South Korea or something like that. Uh, false religion is demonic. You, you should know that. False religion is demonic. You find that out in Deuteronomy 32, verses 16 and 17, that when, you, when people are worshiping false gods, they are actually worshiping demons. The same is said in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20. False religion is demonic. Why are, are there so many religions in the world? Well, how do you think the devil tries to detour people from, from the gospel? He floods the world with a whole bunch of other self-styled different messages. And says, pick and choose whichever one you want. It doesn't even matter. There are so many that you, none of them can be right. People try to say that uh, Jesus was the precursor or the forerunner to some other final leader who will really save the world. You know, like, like we're really waiting for some other guy. Jesus was just a prophet. And, and this next guy is really the, the hero. That's foolishness. That's why it's so important to know that Jesus will return and Jesus will reclaim the earth and Jesus will reign and it'll be Jesus himself. It won't, he won't be in the, some other form or anything like that. He won't, he won't come as some other person. He won't, you know, be in, incarnated again, you know, and, and so, some other guy. It'll be Jesus. In fact, uh, Acts chapter one, uh, the way that um, 
the disciples watched Jesus fly off into heaven after his resurrection, right? Jesus was crucified. He resurrected, hung out with the disciples and taught them for, for some more time. And then he's like, okay, it's time for me to go. And it's time for you guys to do your thing. Go save the world. And then he just, he, he's going to fly off into heaven. Angels are going to take him and, and they're going to go off into the clouds, right? And it says uh, in Acts chapter one, verse 10. And while they, the disciples were gazing into heaven as he went, Behold, two men stood by them in white robes. These are going to be angels, okay? Verse 11. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This is Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven. Uh, This Jesus will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven, right? He's going to come back. He's the guy that's going to come and, and set things right. The entire book of Revelation is about the return of Jesus, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, all the Old Testament prophecies that talk about the kingdom of God, all of that is about the consummation of history and how the the Messiah, the the, the Savior, will come and and fix everything. No one is going to claim the earth. No one's going to cleanse it. No one's going to renew it. But Jesus and Jesus alone. That's the big thing. In Revelation 5, the the Apostle John, uh, he sees a scroll in the hand of God. And that scroll is to reclaim the earth, to set it straight, to purge it of, of sin once and for all. And he searches high and low. He looks through heaven and earth and everything under the earth, everything that's ever been, uh, uh, that ever died, right? Every creature, every, every person in all reality to ever have existed. And he looks and he says, no one was worthy to reclaim the earth. No one. And he starts to weep. And then one of the, one of the guys in heaven, he's like, psych, there is one. It's Jesus. And, and then the apostle John looks over and he sees, he sees Jesus. And he's like, that one is worthy. He's the only one worthy. It's not going to be some other figure. It's not going to be some other person. It's, it's Jesus. He is the hero. He's not some precursor. He's not some forerunner. He is the savior. And if Satan convinces you that some other person or power or point of view is what will fix the world, if you end up believing that, that's what you think is the Savior. If Satan convinces you that you're saved by anything or anyone else other than Jesus, you cannot be saved. Well, these are, these are seven of the most powerful lies that Satan uses to delude the world because if you believe them, you can't believe the gospel. Can we just get the list of them up just for simplicity, right? Those are all seven lies just kind of put up on the board for you to, to look at, right? What's... You know what's crazy about these lies? They aren't substantiated by information to convince you intellectually. Like, just like with Eve, uh, these lies are there to compel you to feel like there's something wrong with the truth. And so you want these lies to be true. There's, uh, there's no evidence to substantiate these claims. There's no counter information to make it true. These are things that, I mean, you ever seen a stand-up comedian just rip on the church, rip on Christians? And you watch it and you laugh because they're funny, they're good at what they do, but then you kind of feel like embarrassed and ashamed of being a Christian because it's it, it, like, it, they make it sound so stupid. And it's not that information is convincing you that this is wrong. It's just, it makes you feel like, I don't want this to be true because now I look like an idiot. This is the way that, that Satan works. This is the way the, the enemy works. He convinces us that, that these lies are true. If you believe any of these, you cannot trust the person and work of Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's why it's so important to us as a church to be crystal clear on where we stand in opposition to these lies, right? The success of Satan depends on people believing his lies. The only counter strategy to deception is truth. Follow a deceit, uh, follow empty deceit and you're damned. Follow the truth and you're saved and set free, right? If you want the truths, that counter each of these lies, we made it super easy for you by writing them down as a doctrinal statement. This is what it looks like. It's on our website. There's only one God. His name is Yahweh. The Bible is his perfect word. Man is inherently sinful. Jesus is the only savior. 
We are saved by grace. Heaven and hell are true eternal destinies. And Jesus is coming again. That is splattered all over our website, all over our flyers, all of my emails, all of our membership classes, all of our, all of our sermons. And the New Testament is replete with warnings against people who will come in, in to deceive the church with false doctrine to try to undermine one of these things. And that's why we have equal amount of exhortations to test what we hear and compare it to the Word of God, 1 John 4. Well, Satan's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's the father of lies, and deceiving the world and the church is the, is, is the primary strategy, I'd say. It's one of, if not the primary strategy he uses. And so we have to double down on truth, don't we? Right? We got one source of truth on matters of the unseen reality. Just one. And it's not someone's opinion. It's, it's not someone who claims to have the only revelation from God. It's, it's written down for everyone to see. It's God's word. The prescription sounds so mundane. I, you know, it's, the application is read the word. And I get that it sounds mundane, but, you know, uh, there's like the, this thing in us. There are, things, there are urges in churches to, to make it about something else. Like if you really want to know the truth of God, you have to speak in tongues. Then you'll really experience what God is like. And, you know, they, they, they throw stuff like that at you. Don't you see that that's exactly how the enemy will get you away from the truth and deceive you with anything else. Make it sound Christian. He'll seem like an angel of light and he'll say this, very spiritual, it's very mystical. I know reading the Bible isn't like our favorite application sometimes, you know? Uh, sometimes it's hard to get ourselves to do it because it, 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 just, it, for, it doesn't always make us feel emotional. Uh, sometimes it's hard to understand. Sometimes it's just plain boring. But don't, don't read for emotional gratification. Um, that's, that's actually not why it was written. That might be a, a benefit at times, but that's not why it was written. You know, don't, don't worry if you don't understand all of it right up front yet. You know? Don't read it to be entertained. Read it and take it to heart. And you, you have to come at it like a daily exercise, right? Daily exercise, and I mean exercise, like, you know, jogging, like exercise, right? Daily exercise, the, uh, the results only come from a consistent habit, not a one-time sprint. Like, yeah, I, I went running today for about 20 minutes. I'm good for January, right? That, it's not going to do it. The, the results of daily exercise comes over time. And that's how it is with the word too. It's to, it's to have that habit of coming back to it, right? Your appreciation of it will grow. Your understanding of it will grow. Your interest in it will grow as you become familiar with it and better at it. Look, you have an enemy who's older than the human race and he has dedicated himself for thousands of years to mastering the art of lying and deceiving God's people and twisting the truth to make you doubt God and make you doubt God's word. His one aim is to target you and stop you from rightly believing in God, rightly believing about God, rightly believing God's word. And if you don't know God's word, it won't be hard for him to shake your faith and to undo you. And if he shakes your faith, it'll either render you ineffective or it'll reveal that you weren't ever even really saved. Even if you know the word, so does he. He knows your strategy too. He knows your moves. And he uses scripture to try to trick even Jesus in Matthew 4. So you have to know it and you have to know it well. You have to know what God says and you have to know it and, and hide his word in your heart so that you don't sin against him. Psalm 119. You have to know what uh, what God is saying. You have to know that the enemy is tr constantly trying to deceive you. And look, it doesn't just happen from, from just reading and being like I read. You have to pray, right? This is, this is how we enter the fray. This is how we get into the battle. This is how we engage the enemy, right? You have to pray. 
over what you read. And you have to internalize it because spiritual understanding is not just intellectual. It's not just facts that you log into your mind. It's not just I read the things and I understand what it's saying and so I get it. Uh, Demons have perfect theology. They understand all of it. But that's not... That's not faith, right? It's, uh, it, it takes more. It, it, it takes realizing the depth and the power and the value of something and being firmly persuaded in it, totally convinced and completely won over to it, to agree with and stand in awe of the beauty and the majesty of what God is saying. We have to have the, the, the cry of the man in Mark nine twenty four, where, where uh, this guy cries out to Jesus and he's like, Jesus, I need your help. And, and Jesus is like, do you even believe? And he's like, look, I, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Right? Like, I believe. Okay, I'll believe anything you say. And I know it's going to be hard. Help me overcome my unbelief. Right? It's both a statement and it's a prayer. That's how we have to come to God's word. Right? We read it and we say, God, this is your word. This is a lamp to my feet and a light to my way. Right? I believe it. Now help me overcome my unbelief. You have to counter the lies and the deception of the devil with the truth and trust in God's word. You have to. And you have to know that God equips you to go toe-to-toe with the ancient dragon, the deceiver of the whole world. He, he gives you enough armament to stand face-to-face with that enemy. And if that's true, if, if he supplies us with the strength, he provides us with the victory. Right? He's given us his word, and that is, the, that is the weapon we wield. We don't have to be captives to empty deceit, but we can know the truth of God's word. And if you know it and you take it to heart, the truth will set us free. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your truth. And for every believer in this room, Lord, we pray that you would sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And for anyone who is having trouble believing in the, in the major pillars of the gospel, for anyone who is wrestling with one of the lies. God, we pray that you would release them from the, the power of, of the enemy. We pray, Lord, that you would set them free from the captivity they're in to empty deceit. We pray, God, that people would be saved. And we hope that our church would stand as a beacon of light to speak fearlessly on the truth of God, on the message in His Word. We want everyone not to doubt you, but to trust you. And not just to trust you, but to trust what you've said. And so we pray, God, that you would breed in us a dependence and a love for the Word. Not as a one-time thing every now and then, but as a regular exercise that the constant habit of it would develop in us the right kind of health so that when the day comes that a lie is introduced in our minds and when something comes to try to sway our feelings against the truth of God and against his word that we be able to stand our ground and to stand firm. Bless this church, Lord. Ground us in what you've said so that we would know the glory of Christ and know him as Savior. All this we pray for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.